read these three verses to you again. Really, I suppose, in some ways, a little study, really, more than anything else tonight. A bit of an introduction into what comes after this first verse, uh, the context, and it leads into Isaiah chapter 53. So, verse 13 again says, Behold, we've heard that in a few of the songs we've sang tonight. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Now I've read that Isaiah, the book itself, is like a miniature Bible. It has, of course, 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. And like the 39 books of the Old Testament, these first 39 chapters of Isaiah are filled with judgment upon immoral and idolatrous men, similar to the 39 books of the Old Testament. All have sinned. The whole earth has sinned. No one is exempt. And God cannot overlook sin forever. The final 27 chapters, again, the same amount of chapters, uh, sorry, books there are in the New Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The last 27 uh, books of the, Old, of the New Testament proclaim a message of hope. And so do these final 27 chapters of Isaiah. They promote this hope, this promised hope of a Messiah, a Saviour, a King, who would both bear a cross and wear a crown. Isn't it interesting to think of a King who bears a cross and wears a crown? And he did at that time wear a crown of thorns that pierced his brow. But we shall see him with a crown of glory, which no crown on this earth could ever match. In chapter 52, God promises to redeem Israel, or Jerusalem, from their bondage and captivity. He calls them to put on their beautiful garments. Put on your beautiful garments. Shake yourself from the dust. He calls them to loose themselves from the bonds of captivity that are on their necks. He promises that his people will know his name. And he promises that they will know that it is he who is speaking to them. They will know him. And in Romans 10.15, Paul refers back to this passage in Isaiah 52. When he declares, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Let's read a few verses from the context previously to these verses we've just read. Verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, 
who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Verse 8, your watchmen shall lift up their voices, with their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye, and the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made there his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rare God. Amazing promises to Jerusalem. Amazing promises to the nation of Israel. But we see in here, redemption, redemption, redemption. He has redeemed Jerusalem. How much do then we look into that and we see the realities of the greater redemption it is in Christ. I'm going to read to you from the commentary of uh, Albert Barnes in a second. We go from focusing on Jerusalem here, or Zion, to the servant in these latter verses of Isaiah 52. So it focuses on Jerusalem, and in these last verses that we've read, it focuses upon my servant. Many believe this ought to be the beginning of a new chapter. That actually from 13 to 15 ought to be the beginning of Isaiah 53. Because it seems to be there is a new transition. This transition points to the Lord who will go before them as mentioned in verse 12. So I'll quote Albert Barnes on this. He says this, It is undoubtedly the doctrine of the Bible that he who was revealed as the guide of his people in ancient times, and who appeared under various names as the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, or the angel of the covenant, etc., was he who afterward became incarnate, the saviour of the world. You'll read in places like Genesis chapter 16 that the angel of the Lord came. That is pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord. It is a theophany. So the prophet seems to have regarded him, and here, fixing his attention on the Yahweh, or the Lord, who was thus to guide his people and be their defence. By an easy transition, the mind is carried forward to the time when he would be incarnate, and would die for people. Leaving, therefore, so to speak, the contemplation of him, as conducting his people across the barren wastes which separated Babylon from Judea, the mind is, by no unnatural transition, carried forward to the time when he would become a man of sorrows and would redeem and save the world. According to this supposition, it is the same glorious being whom Isaiah sees as the protector of his people and almost in the same instant as the man of sorrows. And the contemplation of him as the suffering Messiah becomes so absorbing and intense that he abruptly closes the description of him as the guide of the exiles to their own land. 
This is speaking of the same person. So the question tonight when he says, Behold, my servant, is this. Who is he? Who is he talking about when he says, Behold, my servant? Now, to many of us, if not all of us here this evening, this may appear to be a question that is very obvious, that it has a very obvious answer. It is, of course, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ that we know. But why then do I ask the question? Because it's important to show why we believe this is the case. There is no mention of any name in this prophecy. And so we can quite happily say, oh yes, that's Jesus. That's the Lord, that's Jesus Christ. Speaking of him, speaking of his coming, speaking of who he is there and then. The Son of God, Yahweh the Lord. But it doesn't mention his name. And so we ought to be able then to say, we know why we believe that this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews find this prophecy in this Isaiah 52 to 53, they find it a very hard one. As Gill states, it is contrary to their notions and their schemes. They don't want it. I saw a documentary a few years ago um, that actually said that the majority of Jews now refuse to believe that Isaiah 53 is in the Bible. They try and tear it out because they think it's been added because they don't want to face the truth of what it's saying. In fact, more modern Jews have actually said that this servant that's mentioned here applies to Abraham. The servant to them is Abraham. Others have said that it's Moses. Still others, the prophet Ezra. And still others, Zerubbabel. And even to some, it means, or is speaking of, the whole body of the people of Israel in captivity. And then others suggest that it applies to King Josiah or even Jeremiah the prophet. But of a truth, this introduction, this servant who he calls my servant, which goes on in detail throughout the whole of Isaiah chapter 53. It is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be denied. Anybody heard of the Targum? The Targum is a Jewish translation of the books of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. Quite ancient books. Quite a few different ones of them. But the Targum itself, it was written by, well it's a Jewish translation, this refers to Jesus, or he interprets the Messiah. He interprets this servant to be the Messiah, not any of those other people that we've read. Now that book goes back so early as the middle of the first century AD. So that's how early, perhaps even earlier before it was recorded, but it was recorded there that they, they themselves read this and said, this, is, this servant is Messiah, this is him. In Isaiah uh, 42, if we go back a few chapters, Isaiah 42, 1, we read this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, 
in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That's what it says in Isaiah 42 verse 1. Remember that Isaiah was written at least seven or 800 years before Christ himself was born. As he was incarnate. As it happened much later than this prophecy. But if you then go with me to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 18. It says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This is a prophecy that is being adhered to, spoken of, revealed by the Lord Jesus himself. This prophecy of Isaiah is regarding my servant, Jesus directly applies to himself. It is me. There are many places like this. It doesn't necessarily speak of the servant, but when you look at Isaiah 61, it speaks of uh, this one that was going to come, who was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who was going to set the captives free, break the chains of those who were imprisoned, Heal those with a broken heart. And what does Jesus again do in Luke chapter 4? He identifies, he stands up in the synagogue and he pulls out this scroll of Isaiah without chapters and numbers and it said that he turned to this place, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to declare the good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to bind them up, to heal them, to give them good news, to break the chains of those in prison. And he says in Luke 4, after he says that, and he stops, and he sits down, as teachers often did, and he said this, Behold, today this is fulfilled in your healing. Basically saying, this is me. This is me. Isaiah speaks of me. And there are so many throughout Isaiah that speak of him. And he himself applies it to himself. Some have said that a person could act in such and such a way as to enable certain prophecies to be fulfilled by them. Have you ever thought about that yourself? That what it, when I was a kid I do remember thinking about Jesus and thinking about how you know, people were saying to me, oh, he's fulfilled all these prophecies. And I just think, yeah, but surely being, being a man who knows these prophecies, it could just kind of twist and turn and kind of do these things that would look like they're fulfilled. Have you, do you ever think that? Or is it just me? I used to think it at times. I used to think, did, did, he just, did he just read them and think, right, if I do that, that'll kind of make it look like I fulfilled that. Or if I do this. I, I did think that at once. But the fact is, the truth is, that that is impossible. It's impossible to be regarding all these prophecies about the servant. The reason for this is because 
Much of the detail regarding the fulfilment of these relies not only on what the servant actually does, but on the outside influences which cannot be manipulated. So you think about the things that happened. Nobody uh, could just make these things happen. I'm not going to list all those things tonight because we're going to look into some of these things that happened. But as we proceed in this, let's hope that they become clearer. But there are so many outside influences that nobody could manipulate, that he has fulfilled. Another irrefutable piece of scriptural proof that Isaiah here speaks of the Messiah, the Christ, and that this Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ is found in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through to 38. I'm going to read that passage to you. <clears throat> Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through to 38. <clears throat> now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candice, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near, and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? It's a very good question, isn't it? Do you understand what you're reading? I said to him, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this? She's asking the question that I'm asking. Who is this? Who's he speaking of? Is he speaking of himself? Is the man who wrote this, the prophet Isaiah, is he speaking about himself? Or is he speaking of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down to the road, they came to some water. And eunuch, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptised? And Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptised him. We've got something there that tells us exactly Scripture interprets Scripture. 
Isaiah 52 speaks of the servant. It goes into the same context in Isaiah 53. Many people, especially the Jews, have tried to say it's not Jesus, it's not him. It's not even speaking of the Messiah, it's just speaking of some prophets or perhaps uh, the nation of Israel itself in captivity. But here we've got scripture. Scripture, interpreting scripture, saying that this portion of scripture is talking about not only the Messiah, but that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. It says it directly. Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began to teach him. Beginning at this scripture. And what was he teaching him? What was he preaching to him? Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And he asked him. Can I be baptised? Do you know him? Do you love him with all your heart? Do you, do you believe? That's the question. Do you believe? That was the question they asked him. They didn't ask him about asking him into his heart. Or to say a prayer particularly. He just said, look, do you believe? The Bible says, he who believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He who believes, do you believe? He didn't say, let's have a six week course on baptism. He said, do you believe? He said, yes, I believe. Here's water, what's the end of me? And Philip said, if you believe, nothing. And he went down into the water. And he said this, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe Jesus Christ is who this person that wrote this that I've read is speaking of. This is the truth. Scripture interprets Scripture. We must look to the text and see what it says. And it says here that Isaiah 53 and the servant that is mentioned is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah and that is proof. And now somebody might come and say, I don't believe. I don't believe in the scriptures. The scriptures uh, don't mean anything to me. The scriptures prove nothing. Well, to you they don't. I'm not going to try and prove, it, prove any other. I believe that's the difference between you and someone that doesn't believe. Well, it's faith. You cannot get this Bible here and prove to somebody who doesn't believe that this is true or real. To them, it's just a bunch of stories, 66 books written over how many years by a group of men who just thought, hey, you know what, we need something to believe in. We're all weak men, we're all quite, you know, we need something to cling on to to make ourselves happy. Let's make up a God and let's write a book about it. How are you going to convince them otherwise? Well, you won't. No matter how much you try to convince somebody that the Bible is true, you will not convince them. And even if you do convince them, let me tell you this. If you can be convinced into something, you can be quite as easily be convinced out of it. It needs to be a work of the Spirit of Christ upon the heart of a lost sinner. Where the Word pierces them through. We've heard it this morning. Pierces them through. And they cry out like these people in Acts chapter 2. What shall we do, brothers? What am I to do now? You have just ripped apart my whole life. My whole Judaism. Everything that I believed has just been ripped from me. And you've pierced me through. And I know, I don't know how I know, but I know that everything that I believed in the past is rubbish. And that was my life. The synagogue was my life. Now, where am I to be found? And what did Peter say? Repent 
and be baptised for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happened to them? Their lives were changed. Let's have a look at that just briefly. I'm going to turn to it. Acts chapter 2. These, these people's lives, it clearly says in this context that they were Jewish people from all over the place. And they lived their lives. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Speaking of Peter, it says, With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they, what? They continued. What a fantastic statement. They didn't just say a prayer and go off and, start and, be, and carry on living the life that they'd always lived. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, and in fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. Fear, awe, magnificence, majesty came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. Now that's another great statement for this very thing that we're doing tonight. Church, the Lord's Day, being together. All who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It went from what shall we do of despair and crying out for help in this newfound sorrow and desperation of their soul to praising God and having a joyful fellowship with the church. Absolutely revolutionised their lives. They knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was their saviour. Isaiah also uses the term branch to refer to to the coming Messiah. Not only my servant, but he calls him the branch. Capital B. Capital S, capital B. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch, capital B, of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. The branch of the Lord, who is that? Any other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Note that it says, The branch shall grow out of his roots. And then if you go to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2, Something almost identical is said of the servant, capital S. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, For he, speaking of the servant, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. The branch, the servant, 
And again we see in Isaiah 53, this servant is the branch who comes out of the root of the stock of Jesse. Who is, of course, speaking of Jesse's son David, who became king of Israel. So he came from the physical genealogy of David, the root of Jesse. This is referred to numerous times, so one reference here will suffice. Romans 1 verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Again, proof after proof showing who this person is, that this servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 3 verse 8, the Messiah is referred to as both servant and branch. Zechariah 3 verse 8 says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. My servant, the branch. Who is this? It is Jesus. And we then, with all of these scriptural uh, proofs and truths, no longer have to just say, this is what I believe about Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, but I can show you in the scripture where it says it. I don't tell you from my opinion, I don't tell you from what I feel, or what I think, or what I hope, or what I want to be true. But I show you from the scripture itself that this can be no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the servant. He is the branch. In Isaiah, Israel themselves, as a nation of God's people, were referred to as both his servant and his branch. You can find that as you look through Isaiah. He calls Israel my servant, and he calls them the branch. But you see, the Messiah is the anointed one, the Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. The Lord Jesus Christ is the chief, and he is the head of his church. He is the servant, and he is the branch of the living God. And I, uh, Israel are always, um, I say always, but they are a type of Christ. Christ is the true Israel. Christ is the servant, as they were the servant. They were the branch of God, his people. Christ is the branch. Let me just finish with a couple of verses from, uh, well, particularly from Romans, Romans chapter 11. You see, when you, when you look at things like this, like I said, this is kind of an informational study, really, that we might be able to, to as I've said before, where it speaks of in Peter, that we might be always ready to give an account of what we believe and why. Not just say, well, I just believe it. I'll show you. I'll show you where it is. It's undeniable. But to think about this branch, to think about this servant, the Lord Jesus, seven or eight hundred years before he was even born, was prophesied about all what he was going to do, all what he was going to suffer, all what he was going to do with his people. Yeah. The people that he was going to redeem. Jerusalem was just the tip of the iceberg. When he said in Isaiah 52, I will redeem Jerusalem. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Israel, the nation, was just the tip of the iceberg. But they rejected Christ and he said, 
I turn to the Gentiles. But if you look, friends, listen, Gentiles weren't an afterthought. They didn't just turn to the Gentiles and say, well, the Jews have rejected me, so what else have I got to do? But I've got to go to them. Absolutely not. What does it say of Abraham? It was, he, how was he deemed righteous? He was deemed righteous because he believed and he received circumcision afterwards as a sign of that belief that he might be what? The father of nations. Not just the nation, but nations. The Gentiles were going to be included right from get-go. Right from the foundations of the earth. So it says in Revelation 13, verse 8, that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the earth. That's how long ago. So if we think back to uh, Isaiah, so 700 years before Christ, and now we're, what, 2,000 or so years afterwards? So 2,700 years ago, the prophecies are given about him and others before we think, wow, all that time ago and Jesus was prophesied. No, no, no. Jesus was always going to come from the foundation of the earth. So is it any wonder that Paul can declare in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counsellor? Or who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is the Apostle Paul. Probably one of the greatest minds that's ever been on this planet, apart from the Lord himself. And he himself is still crying out, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. How unsearchable are the riches of Christ. That he should, before the foundation of the world, lay his life down actually came into fruition when he physically did that as the incarnation. But the plan before the foundation of the world in the council of Father, Son and Spirit was laid out and it was always going to be. Friends, we ought to look at this and think, wow, that he should do this before we were ever even thought of. Before our fathers were even thought of. Before our fathers' fathers, we have thought of. But he planned this, and he planned for this night right now that we would be talking and listening and wondering, and by God's grace, being in awe of who he is. This is who he is. That my servant is the Messiah. My servant is the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is who this is speaking of. And we're going to look into much more in these verses in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the wonder, the majesty of your word. Thank you, Lord God, that Scripture interprets Scripture and we don't look for our opinions. 
that we look for the truth of what the text says. And the text says, my servant. And the text says in other places that that servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who he himself declared that it spoke of him. And so, Lord God, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. The Lamb was slain for who? For all of his people. And Lord, as we know, the scripture says, not one of those people whom the Lamb was slain shall be snatched from the hands of the Father or the Son. And Lord, we thank you for that, for all of our sin, for all of our ups, for all of our downs. Lord, we know that if we truly believe and truly trust and truly love you, that we will never slide into the pit of hell. Well, Lord, just as Peter began to sink into the sea, your arm will catch us from sinking eternally into that lake of fire. Oh, Lord God, what an arm it is. Full of strength to lift us back up to walk on the water of grace and glory. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we ask then that you might cause us to be all the more in awe of you. And Lord, that as we study and read together these things. Lord, open up our hearts and minds, I pray. Lord, cause it to be that we enjoy you and that we glorify you. And Lord, that we become more knowledgeable of you, not only in our intellect, but in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds, in every fibre of our being. Oh God, may it be unto your glory. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight and myself, and my family, that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We'll be asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.